The teaching for this evening is based on Psalm 126. This is God's word. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed of sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We are uh, continuing our series this fall in uh, the Psalms, and to do that, I've been... I, keep telling us, I think, from each, about almost every week, that the Bible likens the life of faith to a journey, and oftentimes describes the life of faith as a journey in the wilderness. And so we're trying to ask the question, what is that journey like? How do you navigate it? What kind of person do you become in the midst of that kind of a journey? And so we've been in, our, in Psalm 120 through 134 this fall, and uh, we uh, tonight are going to look at Psalm 126. And not only are we using the idea of a journey as a metaphor for looking at these psalms, we've also noticed uh, that there are groups of three among these 15 different psalms. And we've looked at the first two groups of three the last six weeks. And the first two groups of three of three really focus on the pathway of this journey, that it begins in situations of distress and heartache and struggle, followed by discovering God is our all-sufficient help and ending in an arrival home to Zion, to Jerusalem, where, where God dwells. But when we come to Psalm 126 through 131, the middle the next two groups of three, the emphasis changes. It changes away from the path of this journey to actually the heart of the one making the journey. So the next six psalms really focus in on what kind of person does this journey turn you into? What kind of person are you likely to encounter on this journey? What kinds of things are you likely to face, not just along the path, but in your own life? And therefore, when we come to Psalm 126 tonight, there's a question I want us to think about, and it's this. What is the mark of a supernaturally changed heart? What is the mark of a supernaturally changed heart? And to help us answer that, I think we, we see it here in Psalm 126. And if you have a pen or you're a note taker and, and you have your worship folder in front of you, I want to just do a little Bible study observation with you to help you see how this psalm uh, is structured and how we arrive at the answer to this question, and then we're going to look at it together. But I want you to notice, first of all, there is a repeated emphasis on joy in this psalm. Look. In verse 2, we see there the phrase at the end, in the middle of verse 2, shouts of joy. And then again, in verse 5, at the end of verse 5, again, shouts of joy. 
And then in the middle there, more or less in verse 6, again, we see shouts of joy. Underline those if you, if you have something with you. And then look at the end of verse 3. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. That word glad there could just as easily be translated, we are joyful or we are rejoicing. So a central key word or concept in this psalm is joy, rejoicing. That's the first thing I want you to notice. But second, notice in verse 1, when the Lord restored the, the fortunes of Zion. Underline there, if you have it there, restored. And then look again at verse 4. Restore our fortunes, O Lord. And the question that this psalm gets us, helps us to see is that joy is the result of God's restoring, redeeming work. And I want you to think about this, that the mark of a supernaturally changed heart is an encounter with the great works of God that result in joy. That joy is the mark of a supernaturally changed heart. And if that is the case, then we need to know where to find it and how to keep it. So what I want to do tonight is look with you at this psalm and just under two points. We're going to look at the source of joy today and the promise of joy tomorrow. The source of joy today and the promise of joy tomorrow. So let's look in verses 1 through 3 at the source of joy today. What, what would be the answer to that question? What is the source of joy today? I think the simple answer to it we find in verse 3. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. What are we being told there? Here the psalmist is simply telling us that remembering what God has done produces joy. Simply remembering what God has done, the great things he has done, produces joy. Joy doesn't come in a vacuum. It comes as a result of remembering these great things that the psalmist here is pondering and meditating on. Now only the background for this joy is, is just alluded to in a general way in verse 1 when he says, when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion. What does he have in mind there? Some have actually translated, if you are a, a reader of the New International Version, and if you have that in front of you, if you go look at that at home, it actually translate, translates verse 1 by saying, when the Lord brought back the captives to Zion. And because of that, some have translated that verse that way. It's, it's been um, suggested that what's in view here is the return of God's people from exile in Babylon in 539 B.C., where after God had repeatedly said through his prophets, do not follow after these other gods. Do not ally, ally yourself with these other nations that will draw you away from me. Do not just worship me with your lips only, but with your heart. And they don't listen to him. After repeated reminders and overtures of grace and wooing them back, and he gives them over to the Babylonians and they are in exile for 70 years and then they return. 
Some, some scholars see this psalm as probably fitting in the time period of Ezra and Nehemiah when they were rebuilding the temple and the wall in Jerusalem. Whatever the case may be, we don't have to be too worried about what is the psalmist referring to. What is this great work? Because the Bible's full of them. We could go back to the very beginning after Adam and Eve sinned against God. What does God do? He clothes them. He gives them clothes to cover them, to cover their nakedness. Now, the rest of the story of the Bible tells us that that covering didn't actually do what it needed to do. It was a pointer towards a greater, more fuller, richer covering that only Jesus could do. Or think about when God delivers his people out of Egypt after 400 years of slavery and rescues them in order they could come and be with him and worship him. Or think about the book of Judges, how time and again God's people do what's right in their own eyes. And then they cry out for help and God restores them. He delivers them, only for them to fall back in again to doing what was right in their own eyes again and again. Or think of King David. After years of running, of his life being threatened, God gives him peace from all of his enemies, brings him into the city of David, to Jerusalem, and gives his people peace. All of which are just parts of this great story of God's great works, which we then find the climax in Jesus when God sends his own son into this world, made just like his brothers and his sisters, experiences what you and I experiences in order to die the death we deserve to die so that we might be reconciled to God. The Bible is full again and again of these stories of God's great acts. Now, think about your own life. Think of ways in which God has been at work revealing and showing you his kindness and generosity. What I want you to see here is when you come to Psalm 126, it takes us through the whole Bible, but it also helps you to look at your own life, to read your own life into this story, into this psalm. Now, living in light of the past is what this psalmist is teaching us to do. Remembering what God has done. And when he does, when that's sort of the heartbeat of his life, there's joy. Now, this is something that you and I, we do this all the time. We do this every day. Think about it like this. The route that you take to and from work. You learn from traffic patterns Some are good, some are not. And based on that past experience, you decide which route you're going to take. Or maybe it's which restaurants you're going to go to. You learn from past experience. I want to go back to that one. Or I don't want to go to that one. Or maybe you have a place that you go to on vacation, and why do you go back there? Again and again and again. Because you remember, based on past experience, this is a place I want to be. It's where I want to go. The same is true in relationships. Maybe there's some friendships that you long to to have time with that person again and again because when you sit with that person, 
It's like breathing fresh air. They breathe life into your life. Or maybe there are situations where there are relationships that you can't enter into because they're hard or they are even dangerous or hurtful. And you learn from past experience. And so the question isn't, are you living in light of past experience? The question really is, which past experiences are shaping your today? That's what Psalm 126 is getting us to, to think about. And joy comes from the great things that God has done shaping your today, your right now. And now what are some of these effects of joy bubbling up in your life? Look here in verse 1. The psalmist says, we, we are like those who dream. Joy feels like wonder and amazement. It feels like moments in your life when, when, when you find yourself saying, this is just too good to be true. How could this actually be the case? How could God be that generous? that attentive, that kind, that overwhelmingly patient and merciful and forgiving. Think of it like this too. It's, it's, this is really the flip side of this is a deep recognition that you cannot rescue yourself, that you are helpless on your own. Think of it like this. Uh, one preacher told an illustration Uh, like this one time, where imagine somebody is house-sitting for you, and while you're gone, the mail comes, and and they they get your mail, and they bring it in. They notice there's a bill in your mail. And they take the liberty of opening that bill, which may make you feel somewhat uncomfortable, but they pay it for you. And you come home from your trip, and, and they say, hey, you know, I collected your mail and got this bill, and I paid it for you. How do you know how to respond to that? You see, you don't know how to respond to that until you know how much the bill was for. And if it was, let's say it was just, I don't know, maybe it was your cable bill and it was like $50. You're like, man, thanks. I appreciate you paying for that. It's an annoying one. I don't like paying that. But what if the IRS finally found out where you live (laughs) and you have decades of past taxes that you owe with interest and it's tens of thousands of dollars maybe even approaching hundreds of thousands of dollars and this friend pays that bill for you now how do you respond like your life is categorically different now there is a debt that you no longer have to pay because this friend paid it. That's almost too good to be true. That's like becoming a dreamer. That's joy. The second thing we notice here is that how does joy, what does joy look like when it bubbles up in our lives? Notice here in verse 2, our mouth was filled with laughter, our tongue with shouts of joy. Remembering what God has done, it changes what comes out of you. It changes what comes out of you. Think for a moment. Just over the last 12 hours, 
What has come out of your mouth? Or maybe it didn't make it out of your mouth, but it certainly made it into your cognitive awareness, your very clear thought life. You see, when joy bubbles over in your life because the great things that God has done loom large and are reshaping your heart, worry and self-concern, they get, they get pushed out with laughter. Instead of worry about tomorrow or self-concern and anxiety, the great things of God, they, they creates joy in which you're able to actually laugh at yourself. That you realize, you begin to say, can you believe it? God rescues me? Not only that, criticism and harshness, they get pushed out with shouts of joy. How do you know joy is making its way into your life? Because it changes what comes out of you. But then lastly, look in verse 2 towards the end, in the middle towards the end, it says, Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. Joy has content. It's not just an emotion, though it is that. It's more than that. Joy tells a story, and it's a story that others begin to grasp. It's a story that begins to maybe bump up against their own story. Joy has content. It's it's instructive to those even outside the faith, not just those inside the faith. Joy is noticeable. And we had this conversation this afternoon thinking about this psalm. When people look at the spokes family, do they see joy? (laughs) To which we all kind of laughed because usually it's arguing about who's got the next Xbox turn or who took my turn on the swing or we could keep going. Think about that. How much is joy the thing that people see in your life? And I realize, I, I, I'm not saying that to, um, to either uh, berate you or belittle you. I'm saying that to much, as much to you as to myself. If we really do say we believe in a God who raises the dead, and that you and I as sinners in our own right deserve eternal punishment forever, total estrangement from the God that made you. And by his sheer grace and mercy, he intervenes and rescues you and gives you life and promises you that nothing in this life will separate you from his love. Don't you think that should make you different? That, that should change you from the inside out? And that, that at the very least, the people with whom you live day in and day out might catch a, a whiff of that. And here what we're being told is that real joy becomes recognizable even to those who don't know this God yet. Now, what are we being told here? What are we seeing? To talk about the source of joy... And the great things that God has done is to say that joy has a past. It's part of a story. It doesn't begin with you and me. It's not something we conjure up. It's not an abstract ideal. It has a past. 
It's part of God's story. It's a fruit of his story in your life. But what about the promise of joy tomorrow? Can we say that joy has a future in the same way it has a past? Look in verse 4. Restore our fortunes, O Lord. Now, the psalmist is talking about the present, looking to the future. In verse 3, when he says, we are glad, he's, he's making a statement about his very present moment in light of looking at his past and what God has done. In verse 4, the time shifts towards the future. So joy not only has a past, it also has a future. And now, what I want you to think about is, it's at this point that I think we have to recognize that biblical joy or Christian joy is something very different than what the world means by happiness. Happiness, according to how the world tends to think about happiness, and I would lump myself into this, perhaps you would too. I think I often think of joy and happiness in the same way, but they're very, very different. And happiness is essentially this, getting control of your life in order to keep your circumstances favorable. I'll say that again. Happiness is getting control of your life in order to keep your circumstances favorable. Now, if that's the same thing as joy, we have a serious problem. Because listen to how Paul describes joy and rejoicing in Romans chapter 5. He says, We rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, We rejoice in our sufferings. We rejoice in our sufferings. That means the vanishing of favorable circumstances. And yet here we're being told in Psalm 126 and through the Apostle Paul that when the Bible talks about joy, it doesn't negate suffering. It's not the opposite of suffering. That somehow joy envelops all of that. So how can he say that? How can we say that and actually mean it? Let's look here at the promise of joy tomorrow in verses 4 to 6. Notice what we see here. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. We'll talk about that in a moment. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. The reason why it's important for us to realize that biblical joy is not the same thing as happiness is because if happiness, if joy is the same thing as happiness, which is simply having control over your life in order to keep the favorable circumstances in place, what that means is joy isn't for you if your life is falling apart if favorable circumstances unravel beneath you, if real tragedy, real sadness, real heartache becomes a part of your life. See, joy is is not for the spiritually robust or the professionally competent or the academically gifted. It is not for those who seem to have it all together and then can keep it together. What this psalm tells us is that joy is for the exhausted mom 
Joy is for the angry dad. Joy is for grumpy kids and impatient parents. Joy is for the lonely man or woman who longs to be married. Joy is for the sexually abused or the sexually broken or the sexually confused. You see, joy is for the workaholic who can't stop. Joy is for people like that, which is why it's so different than happiness. Because if you fit any one of those categories or or kinds of people or even remotely close, you know you don't have your life together. And you need joy. You need the great things that God has done to press in on your life so much that you become a dreamer. Look at verse 4 to 6. What does this mean in light of Psalm 126? Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. What is, he, what is this image, streams in the Negev? You may not know what that is, but the Negev is the southern part of Israel. It's a barren desert area. And throughout this entire region are these deep ditches that are cut into the ground from weather, from storms, from wind, harsh climate, harsh weather, harsh land. But here there's a picture Every now and then during the year when rain falls in the hills above this desert arid area, rain collects in the hills and begins to flow down these hills. And then it begins to overflow these ditches in this desert dry area. You see, what the psalmist is saying here is that joy is for the spiritually dry and withered. Are you spiritually dry? Are you withered? tonight. Do you find yourself saying, yeah, I'm, I, I don't really know why I'm going to worship again. I, I'm just, I'm done. I'm worn out. I'm dried up. And every time I go, I wish something would happen and it doesn't. Are you dry? Are you spiritually withered? This image is meant to tell you that, to show you a picture of how God restores One of the ways that God restores his people is he pours out rain and he floods into the dry areas of your life and it's it's, as if overnight you were made alive. It's why we read from John 4 earlier when the woman at Samaria says to Jesus, give me this water so that I would never go thirsty again. Here is a picture of what it means Joy comes when you become to see the great things that God has done in Jesus and he is living water. That there is joy for the dry and the withered. But what about those who are spiritually worn out and grieving? Look in verse 5 to 6. Here we have an image of a farmer sowing in the field in tears. Doesn't tell us necessarily why, but perhaps there's been no rain. And despite that he continues to do the work of sowing, hoping that perhaps there will be a harvest. What I want you to see from this image really is here the writer is actually drawing a parallel between your sorrow and your pain, your grief 
and your sadness. He likens them to seeds. Have you ever thought about that? That your tears, your sorrow, your sadness, that according to the Bible, they're like seeds that you're sowing in the fields of your daily lives. And there is a promise attached to those seeds, even though they are painful and sorrowful and full of grief. Because what we're told here is that when you reap in tears, you will shout for joy. Verse 6, He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing in sheaves with him. One writer put it like this, Sow it in God and he will finally bring a crop of joy from it. He goes on, One of the most interesting and remarkable things Christians learn is that laughter does not exclude weeping. Christian joy is not an escape from sorrow. Pain and hardship still come, but they are unable to drive out the happiness of the redeemed. Now, how can you be sure about this promise of joy for tomorrow? It's because of the past, the great things that God has done. And it's this God who is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And perhaps that's a familiar phrase to you. And that's actually a phrase that is spoken, written in the book of Hebrews about Jesus as our great high priest. That Jesus Christ, the Son of God, in the flesh, is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. As your high priest, as the one who represents you to God perfectly in his life and his obedience and his love and his faithfulness, And he is the perfect sacrifice. He is the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. And you know what Jesus, how Jesus is also described in in the book of Hebrews. Not only is he our high priest yesterday and today and tomorrow, he will always be that for you if you are in him. He also is described as Because of the joy set before him, he endured the cross. You know, that's almost the same idea of what Paul said in Romans 5. We rejoice in our sufferings. Now, why did Jesus, for the joy set before him, endure the cross? The reason is because he knew that his suffering was the only way to bring joy into your life that no amount of suffering could ever take from you. That's what Psalm 126 is intended to show you. It's not meant to make light of or explain away sorrow and suffering in your life. What it's meant to show you is none of that can take the joy that God has for you and wants for you in the gospel. So what are we supposed to do with this? Um... I want to I end by putting it like this to you. Uh, we need our hearts to be reshaped by this psalm and other places like it in the scriptures. And I, I had a conversation recently with a friend that I think helped me put to words um, how I think that reshaping can happen. I was in this conversation and this friend was telling me about just 
a lot going on in life. Um, family members in, in very serious health problems. Terminal. Some are not going to come back. And in a moment, I think of real candor and honesty, this friend said to me, you know, I can, I can read the Psalms and I, I can pray. I can even be really honest and vulnerable about my emotions. But that doesn't change the facts. And I thought, wow, that's, yeah. And I was sitting there thinking, and I was, I don't, what do you say to that? And as we were talking, it just kind of came out in the midst of our conversation. It occurred to me, well, of course not. No, of course it doesn't change the facts. But that's not the end of, this, of the conversation. Because we, don't, we aren't just left with those facts. Really, the question for us is, what are the facts that we need to add to those facts that don't change? or that we can't change. And it's the great things that God has done. It's the gospel. It's that God, at infinite cost to himself, would send his son for sinners like you and me. So think of it this way. What are the facts about the gospel, about the great things that God has done, that you need to add to the facts of your life as you sit here this evening? And as you look ahead to the, to the week ahead, don't let the facts that you cannot change keep you from adding the good news facts that God gives us in Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this psalm. Uh, Father, we, we need joy. We need you to lift our eyes above the clouds. We need you to help us to overbelieve our unbelief. We need you to help us to discover joy today and the promise of joy tomorrow. We ask that you would help us to, to ask you to restore us, to renew us, to refresh us, to redeem us, to rescue us. So much so that that would be so clear and palpable to our, to our hearts, not just to our minds, but to our hearts and our minds, that we would begin to bubble over with joy, that we'd become like dreamers again, able to say, how could this possibly be true for me? Father, I pray for those who are here tonight who are worn out and exhausted, who are dry and perhaps fed up. Would you please restore to them the joy of your salvation? Would you help them in the midst of whatever facts they are juggling right now? Would you help them to envelop that, their, their life with the facts you give us in the gospel? And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.